0: This is the podcast for Woodland Presbyterian Church in Memphis, Tennessee. We are maturing God's people to serve a hurting world. We hope you enjoy the message. And if you'd like to learn more about our church, look us up at woodlandprez.org. Thanks so much. May the Lord bless you. So we are learning from God's word in the in the in the book of Romans. Romans uh, is a letter that the apostle Paul uh, wrote to the church in Rome. So they picked a great name uh, for the for the book. And uh, remember, what's the setting? Right, this is the most powerful at the time nation or the most powerful city in the world. Uh, it's a it's a world that is uh, significantly pagan. It is over sexualized. It is commercialized. It is uh, militaristic. Uh, it is the Culture in the world, and Paul is writing this letter to communicate with them who Jesus is and what does it mean for them. And the overarching theme for for the for the Romans is that we are called to live by faith. We are justified by faith. What does that mean? That's the first the first five or six chapters of this book has all been about what is justification by faith. Remember, the word justified means just as if I'd never sinned. When God looks at us as we are justified, he sees us as perfectly righteous. Righteous like his son Jesus, because we're trusting not in our own works, not in ourselves, not in our good deeds or our culture or our family. We're trusting in the righteousness of Christ. And so Paul has been unfolding that for us, and he's been telling us, what does it mean that you are to live by faith? And and in chapter 4, he gave us this example of, of Abraham. Abraham was this guy who lived in the Old Testament times. And he was right with God, not because of anything that he did, not through his obedience, but because of his faith. Remember that powerful verse, his faith was credited to him as righteousness. So then in chapter 5, Paul begins to make a turn. Russell, a couple of weeks ago, talked about how we are to rejoice in hope, to rejoice in suffering, and to rejoice in God. And in the latter part of chapter 5, there's this section... Uh, that talks about the relationship between us and Adam, and Adam and Jesus. Essentially, Adam serves as what's called, uh, the theological phrases, our federal head which means when Adam sinned, when Adam broke the covenant of God, the law of God, then we also all sinned in Adam. Then the good news is that, that Jesus is the new and better Adam. He is the one who takes away our sin, who makes us right before God. So by trusting in Jesus, in the same way that we sinned in Adam, we are have become righteous in Jesus because he was and is the perfect representation of who God is and so the end of chapter five gets us to that point but so then the question becomes if if we're justified by faith and this is the turn that Paul makes in chapter 6 if we've been justified by faith and it's nothing to do with what we do then aren't we now free to do whatever we want to do? Aren't we free to cast off the law? Because the law has nothing on us anymore. Can't we just do whatever it is we want? And that's the question that Paul is going to be addressing. He's going to be answering that because he's leading into chapter 6 with verse 20 and 21 of chapter 5. He says, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So what does this mean? Does this mean that we can sin more and more because then grace will come on more and more? Or is there a different response? And that's what we'll be looking at uh, this morning. So I invite you to, if you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. This is the Word of God. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? for sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. The word of God for the people of God. God. Maybe season. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness and for your grace. We pray that you would speak to us now in this challenging chapter, Romans 6, there's so much here. There's so much for us to learn and to know. But Lord, if we just learn lessons about you and we don't apply your word to our lives, then we're just listening. Help us to apply and know what is it that you want to teach us. What do you want to be different about who we are as a result of encountering you and your word? Help us to hear that, to discern that, and to apply it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's probably been a while for you since you were around someone who was just learning how to walk, right? We've got a few people who are kind of close to that. We've got a, a family here that's getting ready to watch a, a child learn how to walk. But it's a fun experience, right? Because babies, um, as challenging as they are with the sleep schedule and everything, you can just pick them up from one place to another and put them where you want, right? And then they're so cute when they finally learn how to sit, right? They're just sitting down and they're just so adorable, right? They're just sitting there. There. but then they start moving around and at first you're so excited because hey they're crawling around and look at them go but then you realize oh we got to make sure this house uh, the, you know we got to fix the stairs we got to fix the cabinets all that you're you're on the move right and then eventually you know they're standing they're getting their little chubby legs are getting strong and they're standing up and then they can stand on the ground and they're moving from you know holding on to the coffee table and moving over to the couch right and it's gets this balancing act and there's lots of Falling down and plopping on the ground, and it's so so adorable, right? But then they are now on the run, right? On the run, and you were—this is what you were doing for a, a year or so—is just following them around. Oh no 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 no! You know, take that bug out of your mouth that you picked up, whatever it is. Don't go down the steps that way, all that kind of stuff. But just that process of learning how to walk. Think about it. Now we don't know what's really going through their mind because they can't speak well enough to be able to say, "Hey, this is really fun." But you know, you can see. On their face that's like I have some freedom now I'm learning how to get around Like I I, before I was just right here I, I had to wait for you to come get me the only thing I could do is to scream at you to try to get you to do something and you don't understand what I'm saying but now I can move around I'm able to explore I'm able to live in a completely different kind of life simply because I can walk is most of us, probably none of us, remember what that feeling was like. But We have to remember it through the eyes of the children that we encounter. They come alive. They walk in a new way. Well, the Apostle Paul, through this text, through all of his writings, is wanting to encourage us to walk in a new way not walk in the way of the old self that is either driven by our lusts and our passions not to be walking in the way where we're so concerned with keeping the letter of the law that we either become defeated by the law or judgmental over others because of the law we're wanting to walk in a new way A way of peace, a way of joy, uh, with rejoicing, even in the midst of sorrow and sadness, even when things are hard, there is the way that we can walk that's joyful, that's hopeful. And what's amazing to me, little parentheses here, is that the Roman church got this. I mean, we think about like, sometimes we feel discouraged about how all the culture is going this way, or the government's doing this or that. I mean, think about the Roman church at the time. Were there a dozen people in it when Paul wrote this letter to them? Was it 30? Was it 50? It certainly wasn't 5,000 or 10,000 people. They had no political influence. They weren't in the highest areas of the government. They weren't uh, probably maybe even in the military. They had no power. And yet, by living out what Paul was writing to them through the power of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit, they changed the world the city of rome is one of the most influential cities of all time and it is the center of christian life and faith for hundreds and hundreds of years why because the people who read these this letter sought to apply it in their life so don't be discouraged about what's going on in the world around us don't feel like oh well we have nothing to do or nothing to say it's just the world's gone to hell in a handbasket and we and we don't have any power we have the ultimate power we have the power of the Holy Spirit with the Word of God to, to initiate change in our lives, to live with hope and, and rejoicing. we should be the most positive, celebratory, joyful people that exist in the world because we know that the power that we have in this Bible can transform our lives and change the world. It's done it before, and it can do it again. So let's live with hope. End of parentheses. It's not even in the notes right here, but man, come on. Let's get excited about what God's doing in the world. Okay, so in this section, Paul talks to us about uh, living in newness of life. Now, we've, as I mentioned, the first four and a half, five chapters are all talking about justification by faith. You are justified before God based on what Jesus has done. And now he makes this turn in saying, how do we actually apply this in our lives? It's the last point of this message. He makes that turn. He makes that turn. So we've got three points here. The first one is dead in sin, dead to sin. Number two is alive to God, freed from sin. And the third point is brought to life instruments of righteousness. This would be a great time to get the bulletin out and write some notes down so that way when you meditate on your bulletin, like we talked about earlier, oh, that's what he said. That's what stuck out to me. Or even better, this is what God was saying to me. I'm going to write that down because I want to apply this. And I'm going to write it down so that I know if I did it or not. You got to write it down. If I don't write something down, I don't ever do it. By the way, don't ever tell me anything in the sermon line that I need to do, because I'll forget, because people just keep coming through. That's why I always say, will you email me that? i got to have it in writing. Right, Write something down. Apply it in your life. Another parenthesis, not in the notes. Sorry, here we go. Back to the sermon. So Paul is asking this question, right, that we, I introduced at the beginning of the sermon. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Right? Again, if we have grace, no matter what, why don't we just Keep on sinning. We can do whatever it is we want to do because we know that God's grace is going to continue to pour out on us. Why does the law really matter if we've been justified by our faith? Here's the deal this is a really important question. And Paul goes right on to this. He goes, by no means. He says this repeatedly in different places in his writings. He asks the question, he says, by no means. Meganoito. No way. Absolutely not, different translations say. But we got to sit here for just a second. Well, Paul is saying, no way. We can't just keep going on sinning, acting like the law is not valuable to us. It's not what gives us our standing before God. The law reveals that we're sinful, but we need to understand the place that the law has in our lives. Paul answers this question with another question. He says, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? If we've been made dead to sin, then we should not keep on sinning. So in being connected to Jesus through baptism, One of the things, the aspects of of baptism is that we are connected to Jesus in our baptism. Everyone who has been baptized into Christ has also been baptized into the death of Christ. Our old self, which he refers to in verse 6, this old person, not in terms of their chronological age, but the person who we used to be, the previous person, before we met Jesus, before we were justified, that person is now dead in the grave. Then he continues, Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We might walk in newness of life. The whole new world is open to us because of what Jesus has done. We are able now to walk in freedom and in hope and in joy. He says, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So because we are united to Christ in his death, the old self, the self of sin, of anger, of lust, of hatred, of bitterness, of rage, of envy, of all those words. That self is dead. That self is dead. And so now we are raised to Christ because of our union with Christ. Union with Christ is a profound idea that has been written about so much in Christian history. It's this idea that because we are connected to God, that's now who we are. We may feel our union with Christ at times, but our feelings don't determine whether or not we are one with Christ. What God has done in Christ determines whether or not we are in union with Christ. So if you have a really good day and you were nice to people most of the day, you can't really take pride in it because your union with Christ is not dependent upon your niceness. If you had a really bad night where you said a lot of terrible things or you did some things you shouldn't do and you feel terrible about yourself you feel guilty you feel like a loser you're not being a good Christian doesn't affect your union with Christ. You're still connected to Him. It's not based on how you feel or how good of a job you're doing at being a good Christian. And by the way there's no such thing as a good Christian. And we're all sinful and broken, but we're all perfect in Jesus. These two things are connected together. But because we're united to Him, then that's what defines who we are. Look at what verse six says. It says, we know, verse six, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. He says, we know this, right? We know this, this is true. Now, we may not always feel it in our heart, right? but we know it's true because what? The Bible tells us so, It's the truth about who we are. And what we need to do is to meditate on the truth of what the Bible says about who we are. Not our up and down feelings about how good we're doing on any particular day. Because your standing before God comes from what Jesus has done. And because it's true about what He says in His Word, then that's how we know. We may not always feel it, but that's the truth. So if you came to church today and you feel guilty, well, it's... You are guilty, but you should feel the blessing of God, that he still wants you to come into his presence. He still wants to know you, to forgive your sin. That that feeling of guilt is a a good thing to say, oh, yes, Lord, I I feel it. Let me confess it and then rejoice in the salvation that you've been given to me. And therefore, now I live my life as a happy life. I'm joyful because, man, God, you know the the stuff that I've done this week. You know the things I haven't done this week, and yet you still love me. You still embrace me. You want me to live in joy. You want me to live in joy because we know this. So that's the first point. We were dead in sin, but now we are dead to sin. Look look, look at verse 7. I'll keep going here. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Dead people. They're not bothered by sin anymore, right? Dead people who trust in Christ are now in heaven, and there is no sin in heaven anymore. There's two things that don't happen in heaven. There may be more, but I know of two. One is there's no sin, and two is there's no evangelism. There's no sin and there's no evangelism, because everyone in heaven is a believer. So what we should be doing in this life is to be avoiding sin and engaging in evangelism so that more people can experience the glory of heaven. But think about this. We are dead to sin. It has no power over us. The war with sin is over in one sense. Okay, so many of you have seen the movie uh, Saving Private Ryan. And the beginning of that film, it's, it's a World War II film, and the beginning of it is when uh, the Allies are assaulting, uh, they're, they're doing an invasion on Omaha Beach to try to get into Normandy, where the German uh, army is established a massive uh, like a fortress of weapons to try to keep out the Allied forces. And so there are these scenes with ships, with men, and they're coming onto the beach and saving Private Ryan. It has been said that one of the most realistic depictions of that massive... uh, battle that took place on Omaha Beach and many of the other beaches that were stretched out on the coast and it's a war, I mean it is a war of wars, it's brutal in its depiction of what happens in this war But eventually, over a matter of days, the Allies were able to break through and get into and take that beach to create a beachhead where there was, from that point on, more Allied forces were able to come into Normandy, into France, to be able to go and spread and ultimately defeat the Nazis. So there's a sense in which when that beachhead was established, that the war was over, right because once we got a foothold on that beach that was it we had essentially won the war but we know there were many more years of fighting and battles and challenges all throughout the country to try to overtake the nazis but once we landed that beachhead we won well that's what the gospel is our justification is this beachhead that has been established in our lives the war against sin is over The battle with sin continues to rage. But essentially, brothers and sisters, and if you don't remember anything that I say, the the battle with sin is over in one sense because Jesus has conquered sin sin not just big random sins in the world but your sin if you're trusting in him and because of that then you have confidence to know that the victory has been won so we can go out and continue our assault on evil because we know that Jesus has won the battle that's a powerful image to understand what God has done through the gospel but also what has to happen as we continue to fight for the rest of our lives against the sin that's with us point number two point number two Paul now shifts from the impact of our death with our with Christ to our life in Christ now we're on alive to God and freed from sin look at verse 9. Christ will never die. He died on the cross. He rose again from the dead. So death now has no dominion, no power, no authority over him. And because you and I, those who are in Christ, are united to him, death has no dominion over us think about this one of the biggest fears in our world is the fear of death maybe not just the fact, the fact of dying but like how am I going to die will it be t- painful will it be a terrible death I don't want to die um, but here's the thing And some people have even said that fear of death is what drives all of our other fears. All the the fear of rejection that we have, uh, the fear of, of losing everything is all driven by this fear of death. But for the believer... Our understanding of death is totally transformed because we know that the ultimate joy that we'll ever experience is that second when we die it's essentially something that we should look forward to now I'm not saying we should long for death because while we are here God has something for us to do I think it has something to do with that evangelism piece that doesn't happen in heaven it's sharing our lives with other people to tell them about who Jesus is we shouldn't fear death Because we know that's going to be the greatest thing that's ever happened to us. Hey, Matt, what's the best thing that's ever going to happen to you? Oh, when I die. It's going to be awesome. I'm going to go to be with Jesus. You poor people will all still be here, and I'll be with Jesus. It's going to be awesome. Don't cry for me. Cry for yourself, because you're not there with me. That's the posture that we ought to have about death. Because Jesus has conquered it. We'll be free from sin. All the struggle, all the sorrow, all the the getting old, all the getting exhausted, all the conflict, all the tension. All that's gone. It's going to be peace and joy and love and eternal worship of God. We should not fear death. He says, so you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So what happens to someone when they're told, you have one year to live? Some people may get depressed. And they may just stay in their room and not do anything. But other people, when they're confronted with their own mortality, maybe you've at one point gotten a really difficult diagnosis that made you think, I may not have much more time. What happens? You get very purposeful about what you want to do. You think, I'm going to spend time doing the things that are most important. I'm spending time with my family. I'm relating to my friends. I'm going about doing the things that are the most important thing for me to do. Because why? I have a great clarity now about what's important. I've only got so much time. Why is it that we don't do that in general? Why don't we focus with clarity on the things that are the most important? Because you essentially see, we're all going to die. Every one of us is going to die. We just don't know when it's going to be. So then why don't we live with purpose to become alive in God? If you knew that you had a year to live, what would you do differently? How would you talk to people? What would you concern yourself with? What would you not concern yourself with? We would really change who we are and what we do. We'd be more forgiving. We might be more passionate. We might take more risks. We might be less concerned about what really doesn't matter. But Paul says, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive in Jesus Christ. So here's the thing. Here's an application point if you want. What's one thing that you would do differently this week if you only had a year to live? What's one thing? Write it down and do it. What's one thing? If you want to know how to apply something in the sermon, what's the one thing you could do? Who's the person that you would call and say, we need to be reconciled in our relationship. And I know it was a long time ago, and I'm sorry for my part, and I want to be restored to a relationship with you before I die. And so I'm calling to talk it out. I'm going to give something significant to someone else because you know what, whatever this thing is, I'm not going to have it in a year, so I'm going to give it to somebody who really needs it more than me. What's the one thing you can do this week if your life was going to end on November 7th, 2022? Write it down and do it. Tell me what happens. I can't wait to hear it. Okay, and the last point, the last part, Jesus talks about how we are brought to life. Let me read it again. It's been a minute. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present Yourselves to God as those who've been brought forth from death to life, and your members or your body to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law but under grace. Here is where Paul makes the shift from justification by faith to this idea of sanctification. Sanctification is the process that we undergo once we've been claimed by Christ, where God is making us holy. He's making us more like Jesus through the ups and downs of life, through the opportunities that we have. He's helping us to become more like His Son, and that process doesn't end until we get the greatest gift of all. We're dead, and we get to go to heaven. That happens over and over and over again through all these things. So here's what He's saying. Here's now how we go about living out this justification by faith. How do we actually do this? This is such an important part, because He's giving us guidance on how to live out this justification, this reality that I can't do anything to earn my standing before God. But now in response to this, I'm not going to go on sinning. I'm going to live out my faith in a wonderful and beautiful way. What does he do? He gives us a negative and a positive. He says don't let sin reign. Don't let sin reign. Present your members or the parts of your body to God. So instead of using your body for sin, offer your body to God. So what are your members I right, think about what are the members of your body one one member of your body is your mind How do you present your mind to God and how do you present your mind to sin? Well, I bet if we went around we could think of some examples of how we present our minds to, to God and our minds to sin All Right instead of meditating on the things of the world We meditate on the things of God We take time to listen to, to consider, to ponder God's character, His Word, His life, His faithfulness. See, and if you're not thinking about the things of God, then you're going to be thinking about the things of the world. You're only going to be thinking about your job, your family, your country, your money, your possessions, your whatever. All of which have their own worries and their concerns and things that produce anxiety. Do I like my job? Is it going well? Is there conflict there? But if you think about the things of God first, then that forms how you understand the things of the world. Everyone has concerns about their livelihood, about relationships, about their country. But if we look to God and we say, what does it mean for us, for example, to work? What is work for? Why do I have a job? Is it just to make money? Is it just to have a reputation? Is it just to be significant? Is it just to produce things? Or is it to glorify God? If my job is a vehicle for the glorification of God, then how much I produce or don't produce is secondary to whether or not God is being glorified in how I do it. If I do my job with integrity, with joy, with passion, with enthusiasm... The results are less important because I'm glorifying God in that. I'm using my uh, creative resources to establish uh, companies or systems that help people. That's how we use our work to glorify God. But if we're just doing our work to make money or to get famous or whatever, we have the wrong motivation. That's how we use our mind. That's how we present our minds to God. It's to meditate on who He is. If I don't present my mind to God as it relates to work, well then maybe I'm going to work too much on the like my family. I'll keep striving and striving and striving, and I won't be resting. These are ways that we present our mind to God. What about my heart? How do I present my heart to God? What is it that I love? What am I passionate about? What gets me going more than anything? What do I have a lot of energy for? Are those things that glorify and honor God, or are those things that bring selfish gain to me, division, disruption? What do I pursue? Am I offering what I have to the Lord so that I have them in the right perspective? Or am I driven internally to get more of those things that I love because they become an obsession to me? What about the rest of my body? Am I using it in a way that glorifies God? The the catechism says, I am not my own, but I belong body and soul to God and to my Savior, Jesus Christ. I am not my own, but because I died with Christ, I belong to Christ, and He owns me. And He's the best owner there ever is. And so I should do with my body what He wants me to, because He knows what's best for me. And if I do with my body what I want to do, it's going to get me in trouble. My whole body was purchased with the death and through the resurrection. So I should trust him. I should think about things above. I should love that which he loves. The good, the true, the beautiful. I should make it a practice to invest those things in my life. a practice, the discipline of studying scripture, of meditating on God, of walking with him. So this is a challenging thing to consider. Here's a question for you. Who is discipling you? Who is discipling you? One who disciples is a person who teaches another how to live in the world. Who is discipling you? Is Jesus discipling you in his word? Is another person who's farther along in the faith discipling you? Or is the world discipling you? Is your phone discipling you? Is Fox News discipling you? Or CNN discipling you? Or Netflix discipling you? you listening to measure the amount of content you consume and that will give you an indication of who's discipling you if we're netflix uh, if i'm watching like 20 hours of shows and i'm reading the, the bible for 20 minutes well what's who's discipling me do you think the people at netflix When they get around the boardroom and they think how can we create content that helps people to glorify god and to serve others let's think of shows that would encourage the flourishing of people to seek to fight injustice and to help them to be faithful in marriage and to walk out the truths of god's word how can we do this with our programming No, 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 no. If you've watched Netflix or TV, they don't do that. Otherwise, they would be producing shows like that. What kind of shows do they produce? Sexy shows, violent shows, stories. Now, I'm not saying that these stories don't have redemptive themes in them. And I'm not saying don't consume movies because all movies are bad. I'm saying look at them with a discerning eye to understand who is discipling you. Who are you listening to over and over and over again about they tell you about what's wrong with America? Or what's right with America? Who is discipling you? Is Jesus discipling you? you? See, the way that we combat this message of the world over and over again is to sit under the Word. Is to think about what Jesus did. And how do we do it? The last verse of this section says, You are not under law, but under grace. Jesus still loves you if you don't read the Bible. But you'll never know how much Jesus loves you if you don't read the Bible. Jesus will still love you if you don't come to church. But you'll never know how much Jesus loves you if you don't gather as the church. It's important for you. And it's important for the people who are around you to encounter that. Because when we experience this grace, it radically changes us. It radically changes us. You know the story of John Newton. He is the guy who wrote the hymn Amazing Grace, one of the most popular hymns in the last 300 years. And you probably know that John Newton was uh, he was a captain of a slave trading ship. You see, John, when he was young, uh, was born in England, and his mom died when he was six years old. His father was a sea captain. He was gone for long amounts of time. John was raised by an emotionally distant stepmother. He was a disobedient child and an angry person. Uh, And you know the phrase, cusses like a sailor. So if you're on a ship, and John went to be on a ship, he got conscripted eventually into the Navy, but he sailed on ships. Even a sailor said, John Newton's mouth is worse than anybody else's mouth. The captain of a sailing ship that sailed... caught slaves said to John Newton, your mouth is too bad. He had a terrible mouth. He was an angry person. He disobeyed the captain over and over and over again. Eventually, because he was a good sailor, he got his own ship and he transported slaves for years from Africa all over. But one night, there was a massive storm on the ship that he was on. He thought his boat was going to crash. For some reason, he cried out to God. And he gave his life to Jesus Christ. But here's the interesting thing. Is that he kept serving as a slave ship captain for about three years. It wasn't an immediate thing that God changed him. He didn't become a Christian and everything changed in his life. He became a Christian and he was justified. But then the sanctification process eventually led him to say, I can't do this anymore. And then he became an abolitionist working within the government to stop slavery from happening at all. And eventually that cause won out. In 25 years, he he went called into the ministry, and began writing hymns. And 25 years after he came to faith, he wrote the hymn Amazing Grace. So here's the thing that I'm encouraging you to think about. How did that happen in his life? It was a one-time event, justification by faith. But then over and over and over again, John Newton committed his life to following Jesus, to being discipled by Jesus. He was so uh, passionate about following Jesus that the Anglican church wanted to kick him out because he was wanting to share his faith with everybody and to tell stories about what God had done in his life. The church wanted to kick out this guy because he was so passionate about Jesus. Sometimes it happens that way because the church just becomes a comfortable place for us to hang out with our friends instead of being the place where God wants to confront us with our sin, to set us, to make us righteous, and then to send us out on mission. But it's all about grace. So no matter where you are, if you are at the point in your life where you have never trusted in Jesus for this salvation, this justification, today is the day to do it. We're about to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And what a great opportunity to say, yes, Lord, I trust in you, I follow you, and I want to partake in this family meal. Maybe today will be the first day that you ever partake of the Lord's Supper and you really understand this is what it means. And we celebrate, we rejoice in that meal. But maybe you've already trusted in that. And you're saying, Lord, it's been 25 years since I came to know you. I trust that you're still working, that I can produce something beautiful. Maybe it's not a hymn that people sing for hundreds of years, but maybe it's an act of kindness that reverberates throughout history that leads someone to know Jesus. Maybe it's the one thing that God told you to do if you had one year to live. How will you respond to what God has done? Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this message from Woodland Presbyterian Church, Maturing God's People to Serve a Hurting World. Again, if you'd like to learn more about our congregation, please visit us at woodlandpres.org. Thank you very much, and God bless you today.